one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and has been for years. And we're going to read, just arbitrarily, verses 23 through 32 from Ezekiel. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land which I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jump down to verse 32. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known unto you. In fact, I, I should have started reading one verse earlier in verse 22 where God says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, I do not do this for your sake, but for my holy name's sake. He begins the passage and ends it with the same thought, I'm not doing this for you. When Stephen Charnock wrote his classic work, The Existence and Attributes of God, in the 17th century, he listed ten things that he considered attributes of God, his holiness, his power, his knowledge, his wisdom, his patience, his goodness, his justice, his self-existence, his dominion, and his omnipresence. Now, theologians through the centuries have listed others and divided them in what they call the communicable attributes and the non-communicable attributes, those that God shares with man and those that are unique to God alone. But I want to discuss with you one today I've not seen anyone else discuss in that context, although Jonathan Edwards wrote uh, the end for which God created the world, which Crossway has published and John Piper has edited, which says the same thing, and that is this, that God is totally self-centered. God declares without reservation, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Oftentimes when I preach or teach, I find it necessary to explain things further than I might otherwise do. And if I'm dealing with what may potentially be a controversial thing, I will oftentimes take the time to say, here's what I mean, and I don't mean this, 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 because inevitably someone will say, well, then you must believe, and they'll say something that I wouldn't admit to under a drug-induced state or being in a hypnotic trance. But here God does the same thing. He says why he doesn't do things, and then he says why he does do things. I'm not doing it for your sake. I'm doing it for my sake. Everything God does, God does for God's sake. That is the self-centeredness of God. What he does, he does for his sake, for the sake of his holy name. Now that is such a radical concept to so many people, but what's most sad is that it's radical to professing Christians. <coughs> I think we need to see the overwhelming evidence from Scripture for this. You already know that familiar passage in Psalm 23.3, He leadeth me in paths of righteousness. How come? For His name's sake. In Isaiah 48.9, God declares that He withholds His anger for His own sake and for the sake of His praise. And He repeats that in 48.11. What am I saying? 
just this. God's focus is God. God is completely and totally self-focused. He has nothing but himself in mind in all that he does. Or let me state it this way more emphatically, if I could be more emphatic. God is the reason for everything God does. Everything God does, he does for his sake. You and I are not the reason for anything God does. We reap immeasurable benefit, but we're not the reason it happens. I mentioned how people say God created man because he was lonely. I hope you already see how nonsensical that is. God's never lonely. He has no emotional deficiencies. And you mothers with children know the day you send your kids back to school, you can be alone and not be lonely. Those are two very different things. God created everything to manifest his character, to express himself so that he would be enjoyed by his creation. I quoted Romans 11 and Colossians 1.16 says very much the same thing. All things were created through him and for him. Everything that was created was created by God for God. God created all things for himself, Proverbs 16.4 tells us. In the Old King James in Revelation 4.24, we have this little song that the cherubim are singing to the 24 elders. For thou hast created all things. For what purpose? And for thy pleasure they are created. Why was anything created? To give God pleasure. You see, pleasing God is God's motive in everything that God is pleased to do. And two verses later in Colossians 1.18, we read that God in Christ created all things so that in these things, in all things, He might have the preeminence. It's all about God. It's not about us. Again, Romans 11.36, For of him and through him and to him are all things. All that God in Christ created comes from God. It comes through God. And its ultimate end is God. It's all about God. Not us. We could say it this way. If everything is from him, God is the root. R-O-O-T. If everything is through him, God is the root, R-O-U-T-E. If everything is to him, God is the result. So when the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, as did all catechisms of note before it, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it is because that is the chief end of God. God's chief end is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. The happiness of God consists in his enjoyment of himself. The only way God could ever be unhappy was if he found something wrong in himself that he didn't enjoy. And that is also where man's happiness is to be found. And let me say this, nowhere else. Solomon Stoddard was the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards and himself one of the greatest preachers and evangelists this country has ever known. And in a sermon on Psalm 4-6, he made this point, the happiness of man consists 
in the enjoyment of God. God must always do everything for himself. Again, we'll go back to doing some thinking. To do it for any lesser reason would be to deny himself, which would be to sin against himself, which is impossible for God to do. If you think of the nature of virtue, the essence of true virtue is to do the highest possible good for the highest possible reason or motive. If anyone does something good and they could have done it for a better reason or a greater end than the one which they did it for, it's not the most virtuous thing they could have done. If you find a wallet and you give it back, that's a good thing. If you give it back because it's not yours, that's the best thing. If you give it back because there's a reward you hope, that's not as good. Now we non-thinking human beings with our sin-stained reason have come to this conclusion. God has a good, a better, and a best. That was driven home to me when I was a young college student. I got my first car. Paid a hundred dollars for it. But that was when you could get a gallon of gas for 20 cents too. And those of you old enough to remember this car, it was a 1960 Corvair. But it was a 1960. I had the engine in the back. It was a 1960 four-door Corvair, which was the ugliest car ever invented next to the Edsel. And I bought that thing for $100, and it ran. That's all I cared about. And back then, you could put a four-track stereo in. Anybody want to remember a four-track stereo? For 1995. And then I spent about $3 on a bottle of rubbing compound because the thing had oxidated, and I spent about a week rubbing the old dead paint off to get the underneath to come out. But I get such a kick out of that commercial where the guy's polishing his car and people go by and it's the only way he can wave because his hand's in motion for polishing his car. I never lifted a weight in my life, but I got a Popeye arm over here from doing this that old Corvette. And once I'd accomplished that task, the first thing you want to do when you're a college student and you have a car that runs is you want to get a girl in it. Just if you've got a car in Southern California, you need to have a female in the car with you. So I asked a girl at church, if, I mean, at uh, college, if you'd like to go to Sunday night church with me, and she accepted. Now, this is really cool. I've got a car, and there's a girl in the car, and we're going to church. What could be better than that? And then that night, I brought her back, and I said, would you like to go back to church next week? And she says, thank you, but I'm waiting for God's best. What am I, kitty litter? <laughs> but God doesn't have a good, a better, and a best. That is really bad theology. God must always operate at the optimum level. He must always act like God. If God could do better and didn't, he sinned against himself and against us. God will always and can always only do the best possible thing in any given situation for the best possible reason that will most glorify himself in that situation. And that is why to the Puritans the sin of complaining was the worst sin a Christian could commit because it was in essence saying to God, you could have done more or you could have done better. And God's incapable of either one of those atrocities. And because God's character is the only restriction that God allows upon himself, God must always do what is best for the best reason, and no other considerations can or will be taken into account by God. He seeks his glory, 
and his, to use the King James language, his mere good pleasure in all that he does and nothing else. So the only consideration God takes into account when he makes a decision to do something is what will glorify me the most here. And while we're on the subject of the pleasure of God, let me remind you that Isaiah 53.10 says that it pleased God to crush Christ. That's quite a statement. It pleased the Lord to bruise him in the New King James, the NASB, it pleased God to crush Christ. Now what should we take from that? Just this. God will do whatever pleases Him and glorifies Him the most no matter what it costs Him. What's the corollary? God will do whatever pleases Him and glorifies Him the most no matter what it costs you and me. If He'll do it to Himself, He'll do it to any lesser creature and think nothing of it. Because the only consideration is here what glorifies me the most. God does whatever God pleases and God is pleased with whatever God does. You can't have God in a contradictory situation with himself doing what he pleases and being upset with himself. This is why the Puritans believe in the doctrine of the impassibility of God. God is always infinitely happy because everything that has come to pass he has ordained and God can never be unhappy with what he has ordained to come to pass that's the rhetorical question in Lamentations 3.36 what is there that comes to pass that I have not ordained it and if I've ordained it it must be good it must please me and it must glorify me and you can't have God unhappy with what pleases and glorifies him he is again the ever-blessed God. The only reason any of us is ever unhappy is because we don't get our way. When does that happen to God? If it comes to pass, God has ordained it to be so, and since God has ordained it to be so, it must be what He wants, and if He gets what He wants, He won't be mad at Himself for getting it. So again, God is always the reason for everything that God does. Let me take that a step further. God is always the reason for everything that God asks or commands us to do. Before God gives the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5.6, He makes this declaration. I am the Lord your God. And then He gives His law as if there's an implicit and inherent therefore. I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And he, simply, he means by that, not in front of me, but at all. That's why we've got to quit saying things like this in evangelicalism. I want to let you know that I have decided to make God first place in my life. God is not at all interested in being first place in your life or anybody else's life. What's second? Well, I've got this neat car. So you like God more than your car. Aren't you spiritual? Paul says it this way, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. See, that's the only thing God's interested in. He wants to be your life. They want to be a part of your life. They want to be first place in your life. He wants to be your whole life. 
that everything else that you enjoy in your life is because God is your life. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 18. Go to Numbers and turn left. In Leviticus 18, God lays down His laws regarding sexual behavior. Beginning in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, What's the first thing He declares? Here's who I am. I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my ordinances, my judgments, and keep my ordinances to walk in them. How come? I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. How come? I am the Lord. God's the reason for everything that God asks. That's all you get. I'm the Lord. God's people are to act the way God commands simply because He is God. Look at verse 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. That's how come. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Who is speaking? God. To whom is it an abomination? To God. That's all the reasoning we need or get. Because it's an abomination to God, it's not to be done. End of statement. It doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what science says. It doesn't matter if anyone says, I was born that way. I was born with an inclination to want to do ungodly things with anybody who looks like Cindy Crawford. But I don't get to. Why? Because God said no. That's the only reason. It's an abomination to God. Therefore, it's an abomination. And you're not to do it. Now, let me add this. Such behaviors are not wrong because they violate your personal preferences. Those mean absolutely nothing unless those preferences are based on sound exegesis of Scripture. Whatever you find personally repugnant is of no consequence in the eternal scheme of things. What makes something wrong is not because you don't like it, but because God doesn't like it. Your standards have to be God's standards. Calvin was very wise where he says, where the Bible is silent, we may not speak. The fact that you grew up a certain way doesn't mean anything. But when God speaks, that means everything. That's the end. When God says something is wrong, it's wrong. In Leviticus 19, for the first 37 verses, repeatedly God gives the law and then justifies it with nothing more than these words, I am the Lord. 
That's all the reason he gives. God is the reason for all that God does, and God is the reason for all that God asks. In Leviticus 20, verse 7, we read, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. In Leviticus 22, verses 1 to 3, again, we do these things because I am the Lord. In the Old Testament and New Testament, you shall be holy. How come? Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is the reason. And God is the rationale. When we were younger, people my age at least, I don't know how it is today, our fathers would ask us to do something. Well, they didn't ask us, they told us. I don't ever remember my dad asking, would you mind going out and mowing? That never happened. And if we were brave enough, we might say something like this, how come I've got to do that? I grew up in a family of five boys. I was the second. You can draw any psychological conclusions you want from that. The overachiever, whatever. And my mom was sick for a year with hepatitis and yellow jaundice and spent a year in the hospital. And so my dad, who never called us his sons, he referred to us as his house apes. Okay, it wasn't a deeply emotional family. I can. So he decided to just split up the chores between all five of us. Problem was, my older brother Dan, who's now an OPC pastor out in the state of Washington, was a teenager with a driver's license. He was often gone. So, uh, Dan, uh, you you take care of the yard. Okay. Don, you take care of the house, do all the cooking, make all the beds, do everybody's laundry. Huh? How come I got to do that? Besides, back in those days, you could get away with saying this and live. That's woman's work. And my dad, using all of his biblical wisdom and knowledge of the character of God, said, because I'm the dad and you are the kid. And that's the way it is. Any other questions? I hated that. And I promised myself, if I grew up and have kids, I'm never going to do that to my kid. Until the first time she challenged me. Michelle, will clean up your room. How come I got to do it now? Because I... <clears throat> I swore I'd never do that. But I'm so comforted and relieved to know that's, why, that's how God does it, so I guess I can get away with it. Maybe the only way I'm like God, but still. But you know, the whole of Scripture is laid out in such a way that we should see immediately that God is all that concerns God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, what? God. In Revelation 22, the Bible ends with the grace of God in Christ. Now, just thinking again, if the first verse of the Bible is about God and the last verse of the Bible is about God, do you think we can make any implications about what comes in between? It's all about God. In fact, in Revelation 22, God tells us He is the Alpha. What's that? And He is the Omega, which is the end. God is all that God cares about. He's all that's in between. In fact, in Colossians 3.11, says this, Christ is all in all. God is all. God is not here for us. 
we're here for him he doesn't exist for us we exist for him it's all about God you know this would solve so many things in the life of the church it would answer all the questions in the worship wars that I'm aware of if we would realize that worship is not for us it's for God therefore since worship is about God God ought to be the one who gets to say what happens I mean, how would it be if you invited me to your house and I came to your house and told you everything you had to do what we do in worship we come into God's house and tell him what he has to put up with don't sing hymns because they're biblical we sing them because we like them if we sing hymns at all turn it into an American bandstand well, it's got a good B it's snappy I like it the kids will sing it I give it a four let's do it God doesn't care if you like it or not God is the reason for all that exists God is the reason for all that God does let's look at one more thing look at Genesis 15.1 God says to Abram, I am your very great reward. God is the reward that God gives. God doesn't give us stuff. He gives us himself. God is the reward for obedience. It's interesting that in John, when Jesus is praying, he says, if any man loves the Father and obeys him, is we will come to him and will reveal ourselves to him what's the reward for obedience more of God the more you obey God the more God gives you of himself to know but God's not going to give you more if you reject and disobey what you already have God is the reason for everything that God does God is the root R-O-O-T God's the root R-O-U-T-E God is the reward God's the fruit if you want everything to rhyme God is the beginning God is the end God is the alpha God is the omega Christ is all it's all for Him it's all of Him through Him and to Him God created everything for Himself and to give Himself pleasure and my friends you and I will never understand God and will never have any lasting enjoyment or happiness until we understand that that's how God is and God acts He is totally self-centered. Now here comes the objection. Well, that makes God selfish. It makes God narcissistic. Yeah. But selfishness is only wrong if we do something at the expense of the good of others. But when God glorifies himself, he's not doing anything at the expense of the good of others. He's benefiting everyone. When God glorifies himself, we reap the benefits. If it were bad for us that God glorified himself, we'd have an argument. But it's better for us that God glorify himself in everything that we do. And now do you see why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
The answer is because that's why God does everything that he does. And in doing so, we imitate him to the fullest. Let me say one thing. I'm a fan of John Piper's. But John has this one statement that he says he got from the writings of Jonathan Edwards. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Now, I think if I sat John down and put him on the witness stand and interrogate him, I'd get the truth out of him on this. But my friends, you and I, God is most glorified in himself, whether you're ever satisfied or not. Because God is completely self-sufficient. You add nothing to his enjoyment of himself. You take nothing away from his enjoyment of himself. He is most glorified, and he was most glorified before you even existed to be satisfied or dissatisfied. But you and I offer God the most glory when we're most satisfied in Him. You see, that is the essence of what David means in Psalm 2073 when he says this, Whom have I in heaven besides thee, and on earth I desire nothing else? Let me also say this. I believe that that could only come from a man who lost everything. Had everything taken away. And then he said, that's enough. I guess that what makes heaven to be heaven is God. And what makes life worth living is God. And if that's all I've got, that's enough. And that is glorifying to God. If you and I were to ever act like that, it would be absolutely sinful. If God were to ever act any other way than that, it would be absolutely sinful on His part. Because when God glorifies Himself, He's doing the best possible thing for the best possible reason. There is no greater reason to do anything than that which is the greatest good, which is God. So whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God because whatever God does that's why he does it if you want to imitate God do it for that reason now why do we pick the church we pick because it has the best youth program because at least the kids will go because I get to sing in the choir we pick the church we go to because that church glorifies God the most the gospel is most faithfully preached. That's where we learn most about the character of God is that the church we attend. If there's any other reason, you're going for the wrong reason. And it's not glorifying to God. Why do we dress the way we do? Because it's comfortable? Because it's fashionable? Or because dressing this way glorifies God the most I can do with the clothing I've got and the build He gave me? For some of us, it's because I can button the pants on this suit. That's why I wear this suit. But then you're eating too much to the glory of God. <laughs> whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do all the glory of God. Some of us are glorifying God all that we can. Yeah. What an amazing God. He can do everything for himself and get away with it and still be doing the right thing. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, help us to see not only the simplicity of this truth, 
but the eternal significance of living this way. May we begin to live totally for God, who lives totally for himself, and glorifies himself and blesses us in doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.